I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. My name is Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Rouleau magazine and this is Rouleau Conversations. We're going to talk about French cycling today after the news that Thibaut Pinot has announced his retirement. And then Rachel Jerry is going to introduce a segment on Ribble Cycles, one of Great Britain's most venerable and also forward-thinking bike manufacturing companies. I'm joined today by James Start, Rouleau's resident photojournalist. James is based in France, where the entire country is digesting Nay, morning, the news that 2023 will be the last raising season of Thibaut Pinot. James, can you tell me how they're taking the news? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's, say, quite a national uh, event like, say, Brazil winning the world championships. I don't know that France is totally like on the couch trying to get over this. But for cycling fans, it's obviously big, big news. Pinot was really one of the great hopes of his generation, especially after finishing on the podium of the Tour in 2014. I mean, it seemed like he had everything to be a great Tour de France rider. And he struggled to duplicate that so many times. Nerves, descending skills, whatever it was, he wasn't able to put that together again. He almost did in 2019. I mean, he just flew through the Pyrenees, was the best climber in the race there, was came into the Alps in fifth place. And if he was climbing as well as he was in the Pyrenees, he was looking at a podium or better. And then, you know, pulled out on the big climbing day to team you with a bad knee uh, that he mysteriously hit into a handlebar or something. And that seemed to sort of be the end of it for Pino in terms of a Grand Tour rider, at least, you know, psychologically. There's no such thing as a normal, in inverted commas, world tour cyclist, but he seemed to be cut from very different cloth from most other professional cyclists, didn't he? Yeah, he's, I mean, wonderful guy. Really easygoing, always says hello, really down to earth. I mean, there's nothing he likes to do more than go fishing. He just loves the outdoors, loves just being outside and couldn't be happier with that. The whole pro thing, I mean, he, you know, he was, he was obviously hugely talented, but being a professional cyclist today is a, a fairly complex thing. There's a lot of work, a lot of pressure, a lot of data analysis you have to constantly be involved with, which takes, you know, is a mental drain on guys. And certainly for somebody who just wants to go fishing and ride his bike, you know? My impression is that he's a very, very popular rider these days. I, maybe earlier in his career, he was less popular. I mean, he did sometimes come across a bit prickly. He was hard to interview. I found him hard to interview. I mean, I think for the fact that he just didn't like to do media in and around cycling. And he struck me as 
not being hugely popular with racing fans. But there's something, maybe 2019 was the turning point that people started to feel less kind of critical toward him, but felt overwhelming sympathy. And he was a very sympathetic character, wasn't he? He was. I don't know that I totally agree with you on the popular. I think he was always popular, but, you know, a friend of mine once said, uh, the story of my career, flashes of brilliance followed by long periods of mediocrity. And that was sort of Pinot. I mean, he had these flashes of absolute brilliance, but then he struggled to confirm them, especially on the roads of the Tour de France, where the French fans are, you know, the most visible and are watching the closest. I mean, he had, he had great rides in the Tour of Italy, but the French fans don't have the same interest in, in the Giro d'Italia. So he would have these great rides occasionally in the Tour, winning a stage here or that, but then, you know, was struggling a lot with other things. So I think that also played into the fact that his popularity was not always at its height. It's been a big interview with him in L'Equipe, which I think was this morning. One of the standout quotes in that, which was highlighted by our colleague Daniel Freib from the Cycling Podcast on ITV, was that Pino felt that winning the Tour de France in 2019 would have had an adverse effect on his life because it would have made him into a public figure and that wouldn't have made him happy. What he said was failing to win that race is actually going to enable the life that he now wants to lead. Now, Personally, I'd have loved him to win the Tour de France because he embodies everything I, I love in the kind of mercurial, most interesting character of the Tour de France. But does that insight into the fact he didn't really feel like he even wanted to win the Tour de France give you any new perspective on his career and his relationship with it? Well, I think it says a lot. I mean, he had so much natural talent. I mean, he was a beautiful rider uh, on the bike. You know, I love to watch him climb the way he would uh, just be over the tops of his handlebars, his back perfectly arched, and he had this beautiful pedal stroke, I thought, when he was climbing. You know, he had the natural innate ability. You know, it would have been really interesting to see what he would have done on a major international team. I would have loved to have seen that in some ways. But he was a true French rider to the core, always spent his whole entire career on one team. How rare is that these days, huh? But that says a lot about who he is. Just, you know, he's not going to play contracts off against other teams. Money was not a huge thing for him. He wanted to have fun and be with friends and he found that on the team but yeah i think it says a lot about him and to be a, a tour de france winner today it's as much mental as it is physical do you think it matters that he doesn't win the tour de france well no it doesn't matter i mean this is just bike racing but it would have been wonderful to see what he could you know I, you've got to have a, a feeling that something's unachieved here i mean he should have at least been on the podium several times and you know he was a guy who in my books really had the physical makeup in the right year to win the tour and become that first French rider since Bernard Hinault to finally do it. And how great would that have been? Yeah, and it reminds me of um, an opinion I used to hear a lot, or a stereotype really, that French people and French sports fans especially value aesthetics and the story above results. And that's a bit out of date these days. I mean, the France have won two World Cups and they almost won a third very recently. But there's a telling anecdote from something I read by the novelist Julian Barnes years ago in a book called Something to Declare, which is a collection of essays about France and French culture. And he said he watched France playing football in a World Cup qualifier against Bulgaria, who, not the strongest side, and this was in 1993, so it's a long time ago, well before they started winning at football. And he watched that match with two off-duty French waiters 
And the game was kind of drifting towards a draw. It's a World Cup qualifier rather than a World Cup game. But France had been having the better of the game. And then Bulgaria, out of nowhere, scored a goal, which gave him the victory. And this result actually meant that France missed out on going to the World Cup. And Barnes says that one of the waiters turned to the other and, and said to the Bulgarian that you know they appreciated what a pretty goal it was. And it kind of summed up the stereotype of French sporting fans almost valuing glorious or aesthetically pleasing defeat above winning ugly, which is what you could say a lot of people have done at the Tour de France. Yeah, for sure. You could say that, but um, I don't know if it's true. I mean, we have a whole generation of French riders that, you know, are unhinged and not complexé, as we say in French. You know, I mean, Alaphilippe is not complexé at all. Roman Bardet at his best, you know, he goes on the attack. He's not afraid to, to attack anybody. He might not have the engine or he might just not have the physical makeup to, you know, beat the best of the riders today. But he's not afraid to try, which was for years seemed to be the thing, you know, complaining about cycling on two speeds or three speeds and and just kind of not in the game, which is not at all the fact anymore. But the French fans or, you know, Italian fans are not unlike this. I mean, you can't, that same parallel you don't draw. It's not, you know, the, the Italian fans aren't just about form, but like Julian Barnes is referring to, but the connection with the fans and the ability for an individual to connect with the fans does definitely go beyond just the win-loss column. And I guess the, the things that made Thibaut Pino ill-equipped to win the Tour de France will probably equip him to lead a much more happy life for the greater part of his life. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a you know a very well-balanced guy, I think, which is maybe why he wasn't such a great psych, because you have to be so obsessive these days and so single-minded. And that single-mindedness can serve you well in a sport like cycling or in anything that requires huge specialization, but it doesn't always serve you well in life. So we'll see, you know, I mean, the guy still made tons of money and he can afford to just go fishing if he wants to. Um, he's got that kind of luxury, which is not what everybody has. So we'll see. I mean, he'll be around. We'll still see him. I don't think we'll be seeing him in a DS car or anything like that. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him have some sort of function with Francaise des Jeux or Group Amman now, as we call it. He spent the better part of his life in cycling and has friends here. So, And he spent most of them on the same team. So, you know, he definitely has friends in the sport. So I, I think we'll still see him. And, I, you know, I can only wish him well. Yeah, well, if he's anywhere near as good at making honey, growing vegetables and running a guest house, as he said he wants to do, as he is at riding a bike, then uh, there's going to be a nice spot in the Vosges for tourists, I think. But going from one mercurial French star to another, you mentioned Julien Alaphilippe a minute ago. You've just come back from spending a bit of time with him. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, any time with uh, Julien is a good time. That's all I can say. Julian's one of my favorite riders and has been ever since I first met him at the Tour de l'Avenir before he turned professional. And we just connected there. I sent him some of the pictures. I was on the motorways that day. I sent him pictures and he was so gracious. And we've always kept a really nice relationship as a result of that. And anytime I have a sort of special request with him, he never says no. And this was the case, you know, Ed, you and I were thinking about the next issue and we're going through some different riders and the theme of the issue is going to be the body, which is really original and really cool. And we're thinking of ways to to do that originally. And, you know, I was just like, Philippe is so beautiful on the bike. I mean, I have photographed this guy for 10 years and I have so many good pictures of him because he's so photogenic on the bike. And that was sort of the starting point for this feature, which is rather offbeat feature. You know, I said, uh, 
Julian, you know, this is what we want to do. It's a little bit abstract. I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go with the pictures or anything, but, you know, would you give me some time? And he responded to me in 20 minutes directly. Sure, for you, no problem. And that's the way he is. This is one guy who has not changed since he turned professional, has not changed since he started becoming a big champion, since he started wearing the yellow jersey or the, or the world champion stripes. I can tell you that. He's a really good down-to-earth guy. So I went down there and we did a whole bike shoot with him on the bike. And then we sat down and talked to him. I sat down and we just chatted about, you know, his relationship with the bike. And he loves a bicycle. It's a toy for him. He's like Sagan. He gets on the bike and he's playing. The guy is playing. And there's nobody that loves going down a, a mountain faster or with more fun than Pinot. Pino. It's the opposite of Pinot. Um, Pinot struggled in the sense. Philippe is almost liberated when he goes, starts going down a descent. I remember that. Tour de l'Avenir. Every hairpin turn coming down the climbs, he took three bike lanes out of the whole pack. After every turn, he loves descending and it's fun for him. So we just talked about that whole relationship with the bike as an extension of himself and a, and a way to have fun and a way to be free. He's like Pinot. He's a product of rural France. Pinot's from the Vosges and Alaphilippe is from kind of La France Profonde, like really Allier, the de département of Allier, which I know very well because I used to live there. It's one of the quietest, most rural, least significant département in France and he you know I think he's born and grew up in uh, Saint-Amont-Montant and then and then Montluçon can't remember which is which there but he's from the back end of nowhere in a very kind of quiet part of France but he's very different yeah he is he uh, well his father was a musician a sort of traveling musician in the region and he grew up with that he also loved playing the drums growing up and he got into cycling early obviously he had tons of energy and probably his mom said get this kid on a bike so he can run through some of his energy and, you know, he started out with cyclocross and, you know, like, hey, how many great riders today come out of cyclocross? L.A. Philippe was, was just one of them. Cyclocross is very much fun. I mean, it's playing with your bike, hopping with your bike, riding through mud or sand or whatever with your bike. He connected instantly with the bike as a means to kind of have fun. But I think that those roots are also very key to who he is today. It's very important, actually, for him to not have changed, to not have been affected by fame. And he values that very much. And, you know, I, I thanked him for always giving me time and, and making time. And he's like, you know, it's normal. I mean, why wouldn't I? I always did. Why wouldn't I? You know, we've, we've had this relationship and why would it change? You know, and I sense really it's important for him to maintain those kinds of things. How much do you think can be read into the fact that he's riding now for the team, which is known as Sudal Quickstep, which we'll probably all still call Quickstep? It's a, an international team with Flemish roots, not particularly French, and he's never really been linked with a French team. Do, how much do you think can be read into that? It's his team. I mean, he turned pro after being on their development squad, so he came out of that. And I think being on the same team, uh, like Pinot, is, is important for him. That sort of continuity, I think, is important for him. Obviously, and I'm sure the Belgian press is going to be talking about I think the press will be talking about this more and more in the next year or so, depending on how the star and the trajectory of Remco Evernapol goes, we'll see if Philippe continues to find the same place and space on that team that he has over the past few years. But time will tell. And, you know, he's had offers from other teams, but he wanted to stay with Quickstep because he knew that he was surrounded by good people, people he knew, people that knew him, and gave him the tools and the support that he needed to express his thing. And I think Julian's somebody that he likes stability and he's found that on the team. So maybe he will at some point go to a French team, but maybe he won't. Along with Thibaut Pinot, he was one of the 
major protagonists of that 2019 Tour de France. And yeah, he spent most of that race in the yellow jersey. In retrospect, maybe you can say he was with the massive, very elevated mountain stage in the Alps in the last few days. Maybe you can say he was never going to actually win it. But he absolutely lit that tour on fire. And it was, for me, that was vintage Alaphilippe. It was, I don't think he's been any more dynamic or photogenic or telegenic or attacking on the bike. He was just, you know, from I think the second or third stage, which finished in Epernay, going through the Avenue de Champagne and on the hill, he punched clear of everyone, you know, with 13 or 15 kilometres to go maybe and held off everybody and then attacked with Pinot through the Massif Central, had a great finish on La Planche des Belfilles, got those two the wrong way around, won the time trial in Poe, where, you know, a punchy time trial so suited to him, but he was absolutely on fire. He rode well in the Pyrenees. And I think for me, when I think back over the career of Julien Alaphilippe, I can't think of any race that more encapsulates the essence of how he rides. And, you know, again, the expressive way he rides the bike. Yeah, absolutely. He was so much fun to follow that year. And boy, was I hoping that he could pull it out. And I mean, he had everybody on the ropes because he was such an unknown that year and so unexpected. And if there was a, a tour that he could win, it was going to be that one. But I don't think he was ready for it. And I certainly don't think his team was ready for it. He had very little support in the mountains. And, you know, he's isolated. And that became very evident in the last two days. He was just totally isolated. So, you know, obviously, if Evanpole keeps improving, uh, they're not going to take him to the Grand Tour without proper support. But, you know, Julian didn't come off as a Grand Tour rider. He came off as a puncher, a stage winner, a guy who could get the jersey for a while. I think he surprised himself that year and he surprised his team that year. He surprised everybody. I wasn't that surprised. I mean, that tour was kind of like when Thomas Vauclair had yellow. And all of a sudden, he lost the yellow on the last day in the Alps. And maybe if his team was more prepared for it at the time, maybe he would have ridden differently. Maybe he would have held on or at least finished on the podium. And in, in both of those guys, when the race fell apart for him, they lost the jersey. They didn't just lose the jersey. They lost the podium, too. Julian wouldn't change anything. He rode brilliantly. He had fun on the bike. He had fun racing. He raced the way he loves to race. And that was you know, I mean, you're talking about how the French love jest and beau jest and, and all of that. No, he didn't win that year, but he certainly won the hearts of the French and, and pretty much any bike racing fan because he raced brilliantly. So what's coming next, James? You just come back from the Sudal camp and I think you're off traveling again very shortly. Yeah, uh, yeah, very shortly. Going back finally to Argentina, to the Volta Ciclista San Juan. This is the last race that... I haven't done since COVID, you know, every other race has been, I've been able to return to and cover again. This was canceled. I did it in 2020, you know, and COVID was just building up. We were hearing about it, it was building up. And then by the time we got to Pyrenees, France was on the verge of shutting down and the world was on the verge of shutting down. And then, you know, every race was canceled, postponed this and that. And the Volta, Chiquista of San Juan, uh, as an international race was postponed or canceled until this year. So I can't wait to get back. It, it, for me, it's a sort of sense uh, return to a final return to normalcy. We went back to the Canadian races in, in the fall. That too was something that was really important. That was something that hadn't happened since COVID. And this is the last return to racing. So I can't wait. And I love these races around the world. I love the Canadian races. I love uh, Argentina. The fans are so happy. We take cycling to a different part of the world. It's exotic. The riders are relaxed because they're in this completely different place. 
we have a great time and it's good racing. And we have a great field. I mean, we've got Remco, we've got Sagan, we've got Jakobsen, we've got, I don't know, you know, how many sprinters. It's going to be, you know, a lot of great racing and a lot of good times. So I just can't wait. And what's the landscape like for that race? It's pretty flat. It's mostly for sprinters. And then they had the one long climbing day, but it's sort of like this long drag up this, like just this long climb that goes on forever, but it's never really steep. But all of a sudden you're at, you know, close to 3000 meters and there's not much oxygen left. So people do crack, but it's not like a wall that you'll find in the Pyrenees or anything like that. Before this, you know, we had the uh, Volta Chiquista San Luis and that was a really wonderful race too. And that had a little bit more climbing. Uh, we had a lot of stages that finished on a climb. We didn't, you know, it wasn't huge mountain days, but we'd have five, six, 10 kilometer climb at the end. So guys that came, they really wanted to climb, could climb. Here, it's mostly given over to sprinters. It's very arid. Hottest day I've ever been on a moto was in the tent, the Volta San Juan, I think it was like 46 and climbing. And they actually cut the cage, the stage stork because it was so, so hot. But, um, you know, it's just, you're in a different place and it's pretty wonderful. We're going to take a short break now and then Rachel Jerry will be back to introduce her segment on Ribble Cycles. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. We feature the work of the best writers in cycling, along with the very best photography, elegantly laid out and printed on high-quality paper. Our deep dives into road racing, gravel, adventure cycling and life on two wheels are immersive, independent, agenda-setting and thought-provoking. We aim to educate, entertain, inform and inspire. Our latest magazine, out now, is Ruler 116, The Mind Issue. We all know that cycling broadens the mind. It takes us to new places and allows us to revisit familiar ones. And bike riding time is excellent thinking time. Cycling is a physical pursuit. Pedal, breathe and repeat. But the physical activity is enriched and made more meaningful by how it relates to what goes on inside our heads. Ruler 116 features exclusive interviews with two legends of road racing, Mark Cavendish and Peter Sagan. Cavendish is the joint record holder for Tour de France stage wins and has been open in the past about his struggles with mental health. Sagan is a three-time world champion and Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders winner. Both have had to work out how to deal with the consequences of fame and success. Also featured in Ruler 116, the role of confidence in world tour cycling, how to plan a world hour record, how to support people in cycling who are susceptible to eating disorders, Riding in the Dolomites and Spanish Badlands, plus interviews with Taylor Finney, Veronica Ewers and Safia Al-Sayeg. And also, High Tea with Lachlan Morton. Ruler 116 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. I was always very aware of the Ribble brand. I mean, my own personal journey with Ribble Cycles goes way back to when I was 15, so 32 years ago. And as a kind of aspiring cyclist, I was definitely influenced by the key races at the time and the kind of riders at the time that were supported by Ribble Cycles. So I basically saved up all of my uh, hard-earned money, should we say, and 
purchased a very specifically designed ribble frame that I kind of designed myself and it was custom coloured and it was the uh, club I was riding for at the time. It was in the same colours as the, the team kit. And then, uh, yeah, just built it up with the best components I could possibly afford at that point in time. That was kind of 30 years ago, which is hard to think now. And that frame served me well. It was a race bike, then a training bike, and then even a rough stuff bike. And before the days of gravel bikes, we kind of just used whatever we had. And that went from being my kind of pride and joy race bike down to being winter training bike, then into a bike which was used for off-roading. So, yeah, it was a, definitely a... Uh, my experience with Ribble goes way back, and it's great to think that now, 30 years later, I'm now leading the brand into the into the future, which is, yeah, it's great. That's a crazy story to go from being a teenager, like, on the bike, and now you're at the forefront of a kind of new era for Ribble, which is really exciting. And when you did join, the brand, I suppose, was in a very different place to where we see it today. What kind of areas did you see needed improving? Like, what did you change when you sort of became CEO? So Ribble's always been this premium bike brand over the years, and it was this premium bike brand that I bought into kind of 30 years ago. But over the more recent years, the business had uh, transitioned into, first of all, they were at the forefront of mail order um, in terms of parts, accessories, and clothing. Then they digitized it, and they were going to, took it all online. And the business was very much focused around pushing that kind of e-commerce, parts, accessories, and clothing side of the business. That's when I walked into the business. That's what the focus of the business was. Circa 80% of what we sold was other people's brands. But there's always this this bike brand with a long-standing history that I'd bought into 30 years ago was there under the surface that had, whilst not been neglected, it hadn't been the focal point of the business. For me, I could see that there's a real opportunity to really focus on the brand, focus on the product, and really put the emphasis back onto the Ribble brand rather than us being a retailer of other people's brands. I think one of the key moments that a lot of people remember is at that cycle show in 2017. And I think the brand launched a 23 model range, which was a real statement of intent that like it changed and there was sort of a new lease of life in Ribble and a new vision and proposition. What was the thinking behind that from your perspective? So as, as soon as I joined the business and as soon as we decided that uh, we need to change the strategic direction of the, the brand and the business into being focused almost solely on our own range and our own uh, our own brand, it was clear we had to build a uh, an R&D team and a, a team of product designers that, that could develop a range that was aligned to what the ambition and the vision was for the future of the brand. So the first person I recruited back in 2017 was Jamie Burrow. So he brought with him a lot of experience. I've got a lot of experience myself as well with regards to product design over the years. So between the two of us, we embarked on a significant amount of research and development and new product development to get us to a point where we had a new range of product which was aligned to our future strategic direction. And the, the reason why it's 23 new models and rather than just drip feeding in one and two at a time was that we had to show that this was the new Ribble. It wasn't just a case of a gradual approach and a build up into the new strategic direction. It was absolutely around, we wanted a big bang. We wanted to go out there to show the consumer and uh, cyclists around not just the UK, but around the world that this is what Ribble is going to be about. This is what we are. And at that point in time, it wasn't just a case of launching Me Too product either. We actually launched the world's lightest electric road bike at that point in time. And that, that to me was pivotal because it wasn't just a case of let's just design another bike. It was a case of let's really look at the market. Let's look at what that cyclist wants. And let's, let's redefine what an electric road bike is capable of. And it wasn't just a case of, as I say, being a Me Too product. We went out there with something which was the best in the world. And that really typifies the philosophy that we've got within Ribble. And there are obviously sort of 
staff members who were already at Ribble. Was it hard to convince people to get on board with you? Did that take a lot of effort to sort of make people believe in your vision? Because it was a big shift. You're right. It was a significant shift. We were almost changing the business completely to focus on our own brands rather than other people's brands. And so, yeah, it was significant. Launching such a high level of new product at one point in time did two things internally for the team. One is it created a big bank internally for the team. So the team straight away saw that, right, this is new Ribble. The other thing it did was it really focused the minds and the, what we were working on at that point in time. So by us launching that number of products in one go, put a real pressure and stress on the team. But it was a pressure and stress that was focused on one direction. And it meant that everybody had to work together to kind of swim in the same direction with an end game in sight, which was away from what we were doing in the past. So, so kind of by having such a big project, it meant that we had to all work together and we had to change our direction together with the focal point being the bike show uh, in 2018. It was as much for the external consumer as it, as it was for the internal team in terms of really getting that transition, some traction. How much of it was about just changing what people thought of Ribble, but then at the same time, I suppose you also needed to keep the heritage and what makes the brand special. Was that a hard balance to sort of get right? Yeah, so there's obviously there's a heritage there. And I mean, as we said before, we're 125 years old now. There's a heritage there. There's a reason why I bought into the Ribble brand 30 years ago. Our core range of products was very road focused. And following that point in time was very much our core customer base. So we had to be do the right thing to make sure that we were still talking to that consumer. But at the same time, through diversification, it was about talking to new audiences as well and getting the Ribble brand out to a wider market the emphasis on uh, the existing market which was very much road focused and you're right I mean our average order value uh, at that point in time was relatively that mid-range is where we were focused at and was a real opportunity to really push how far we could push the Ribble brand in terms of credibility and obviously in terms of the price point people expect to see from a Ribble bike and that's not just about charging more for this same product it's about adding more value into the product but at a higher price point so it's always about being the best performing bike at a price point. It's not just about adding cost to it or value to it without adding uh, anything for the customer. And you spoke before about how bringing Jamie Burrow, and he's obviously an ex-professional rider, how much that helped you change the brand and change the products you're offering. Why do you think he was the right person and what did he bring that was fresh and, and new? So as soon as I met Jamie, uh, I knew straight away that we shared the same vision and the same passion for product, product development, product design. And also for designing a product that would challenge convention, not always doing something that was the same as, as, as other people. I mean, a big saying we had back then was just because it is doesn't make it right. And because the bike industry is well known for tradition and heritage and a bike has looked relatively similar for a long period of time. But there's ways of looking at products, looking at it from a, a user point of view and looking outside of existing design parameters to give the consumer a better product. You see that in our ultra aerodynamic race bike, for example, where particularly with the handlebar, we looked at a completely different way of designing a handlebar, which ultimately gives the customer and the rider a significant measurable performance benefit by not just taking uh, the norm, the way it's done, and looking outside the box, should we say, and uh, yeah, doing something a bit different. So I knew straight away talking to Jamie that he shared the same vision, shared the same passion, and yeah, he had a wealth of experience, not just designing products, but also riding bikes as well, which I think is critical as well. I think it's key that you need to ride the product and be in the, the thick of the market, sort of cycling, to really understand what's required from a bike. And he definitely had that. 
And are you and Jamie sort of the people who will be testing these bikes? And do you ride them day in, day out yourself? Because I guess some CEOs of bigger companies maybe wouldn't be as hands-on as you are, but it seems like you're very involved. Yeah, 100%. I have a real underlying passion for for the product itself and i've always been very much product focused right from my early days in the cycling industry as a cycle mechanic all the way through to product manager and product designers designer and then developing product ranges throughout my career and so product to me is where my heart is really is in developing product and working with jamie on that is yeah is, is really good Another thing you've mentioned as well was this digital first approach and how that was a big part of the change that you sort of made when you joined. Can you explain a little bit more about that, what you really mean by digital first and why you think that's so important? When I joined the business, Ribble was already a digital first business. So Matthew Lawson, he's our chief digital officer. He was already uh, on board within the team and he'd he'd made some great advancements and changes to the Ribble business from when he joined back in 2015 in terms of digitizing the Ribble business, particularly from a parts success and clothing perspective as we're selling uh, that, that type of product. But then he was actually then, uh, Matt and the, the rest of the digital team were absolutely fundamental then in terms of really driving our business forward in terms of how we then focus on our USPs from a bike perspective. So if you think about our proposition, we, we don't just sell a bike and expect the, the customer to, this is the bike we've designed, here you go. We do offer a, a unique level of customization and then personalization. And we package that in a very digital, customer friendly way that has been delivered via our, our website and then rolls on into our showrooms as well. So, yes, yeah, so Matt and the team were, were fundamental there in terms of taking the digital expertise that we had already in the business, bolstering it with further recruitment and further talent, but then really turning the hand to um, how we can really give a unique and world class customer experience from a, a bike perspective. But you're not without those physical showrooms and shops that people can go in and see the product and experience it for themselves. Do you think that they will always kind of hold an importance alongside having the website and being able to buy bikes through there? The way we look at it is just because we're digital first doesn't mean to say there isn't a physical element to it. And a bicycle is a it's a, it's a physical product and there is a level of interaction that some customers do value when they're purchasing a bike. And it's very tactile as well. So what we've done is we're, from a, uh, a showroom perspective, we've taken our digital journey and we've replicated it onto into the physical world. And another key reason for that is that because we offer a level of customization, uh, it's not just a case of here's the bike and then we choose a spec for you. We do offer a level of customization. So you can choose tweet bar uh, width, stem length, saddle choice, wheel choice, that kind of thing. You can do that via our website. Also, a key thing here is uh, is personalization. We really value that because the last thing you want is if you spent four or five thousand pounds on this customized bike that you've designed and that is right for your cycling needs. The last thing you want is someone else on your group ride potentially is to have the same bike. So we offer a level of personalization that's unique in the marketplace. So you can choose from any one of what probably well, it's around I think it's about four billion different color combinations at the moment to make sure that bike is absolutely personalized to you it's like an extension of your personality should we say so there's a digital way of doing that which we've done a great job via our website but then there's also some customers really value the physical element of that so you can go into one of our showrooms and you can go through the same customer journey that you would online but in the physical world and our showrooms are not like a conventional bike shop where you've got that row upon row of bicycles all end on and you can't really see what's what as it's a very much a brand immersion and you can see the bikes side on. Each bike's got like an iPad touchscreen next to it, which you can go through exactly the same detail that you would have seen on the on, on the website. You can go through the custom color process with color tubes, etc. You're going to hold up against the bike, hold up against each other. 
so yeah the customization elements are all there as well and also we've got a team of experts in every showroom so you can talk to an expert face to face around any issues you may have or any questions you may have and then also then fit is obviously important as well so you can then have a go to be sized on the bike too so we offer that from a showroom perspective but then what we also do is we also bridge the gap between the digital and the physical with what we call uh, Ribble Live. So Ribble Live is a one-way video link-up between essentially the showroom setting and the customer who's whether at home or at work or on their laptop or on the phone, and you can have a one-way video call uh, real-time with an expert in our showroom, and you can see the product there up front, and you can ask, any, again, any questions that you may have to one of our one of our experts. There's a, definitely a very big focus on that customer experience and sort of making every purchase as important as every other one. And that brings you on to something else I wanted to mention is that we've spoken a lot about the sort of higher end bikes and at the higher end of the price range, but Ribble's range is absolutely huge and there's something for everyone there. Is is that something that's always been important to you, ensuring that you kind of offer a bike for a customer regardless of their price point? Everyone can be on a Ribble depending on their riding style, depending on how much they want to spend, etc. An expensive bike is, it's all relative to the cyclist. One person may deem a certain price point to be expensive, another person may not do. But for me, ultimately, it's about giving the consumer the best possible cycling experience. So, for example, I mean, yeah, we do our Ultra SLR, which can retail up to £10,000 if you look at the bike that we had at the Roulet show. So you can go all up to that, that level of product with gold leaf detailing on it. Or you can buy our Endurance AL, which is around more close to £1,000. But it's all relative to the needs of that cyclist. And we put the same level of attention to detail into our Endurance AL because that's got a specific requirement for that customer. And you could have a similar level of customization and personalization on that bike at £1,000 than you would have at that higher level bike at the seven to £10,000 level price point. So... The, the same level of attention to detail and focus goes on to each model. doesn't really matter about the price point. Has there kind of been any challenges you faced with this sort of journey with Ribble? Are there any challenges you see now even with the current bike market? Just because I feel like it's easy to put across this idea that, you know, it was a very smooth journey, but I'm sure like in every business there are these challenges. Can you think of any specifically that were difficult moments for you? From 2017 to 2019, the main challenge for us was the transition and transitioning away from being a parts suggested in clothing retailer selling other people's brands into being focusing 100% on our own range of in-house designed and assembled bikes that was a, a challenge in itself being such a significant transition but we handled that very well and that was very successful if we look at more recent times we definitely haven't been immune to the challenges that the rest of the bike industry has faced so supply chain has probably been I'd say the biggest challenge that we've seen over the past I'd say two years and there's been multiple issues within that. I mean, most of it is outside of our control as well, and we've had to be we are very reactive to to that. Thankfully, things are settling down now. But I'd say over the past two years, that has certainly been, I would say, the biggest challenge that's faced, not just us as a business, but I would say the cycle industry generally. Changing strategic direction in itself was, was challenging, but I think when you overlay other challenges as well like, that have been external factors, onto it i'd say it's been a challenging period not just for us but it's has been for the whole bike industry where do you see the future of ribble going now because we've seen you expand quite a lot into like e-bikes and creating e-bikes that are maybe 
look similar to road bikes, maybe don't have that sort of traditional e-bike look that people think of when they think of an e-bike. Is that an area you see expanding? What are sort of the key areas you want to see growth in over the next couple of years? Yeah, I'd say we've only just really started with diversification. We launched that new range of product in 2018 and it was the back end of 2018. So it was really only four years ago that we launched that first range of product. So it's it's not too long ago that we only really started to branch out into other areas outside of our our core heritage, which was in road bikes. So we've still got quite a long way to go in terms of really building and driving into those those markets and continue from a product development perspective. I mean, e-bike is a very exciting area and our approach to e-bikes has been very much around we wanted a bike that felt and rode like a conventional bike and it was it visually looked like a premium conventional bike but then had the power assistance there for the rider when they need it and that's something that we want to continue to to push along those lines and we had a prototype of a new e-bike at the Rue show that we'd custom colored and very much a prototype but it kind of showed the direction that we're going and it's bridging that gap even more into between performance road and having electric assistance it's taking an e-bike for us it shouldn't just be a heavy bike with a battery bolted onto it. It's got to be a product which has been designed from the ground up to where the, elect- the e-system is integrated within the product and it's also integrated within the experience that cyclist has. So it becomes part of their cycling as opposed to kind of uh, it's all about the e-system, should we say. Yeah, it's definitely an opportunity for us and we, as, as well as other areas are as well. So yeah, diversification is something we've only really just started to explore. It seems like innovating and always thinking of new ideas is a key part of Ribble's ethos. I mean, we saw it with the Ultra. That was a bike that really turned people's heads. And like you're saying, we're still seeing prototypes of e-bikes and stuff now. Is that something that will always be important to the brand, making sure you kind of never rest and you're always looking for the next innovation, the next exciting product? Yeah, it definitely. Uh, I think the Ultra is a very good case in point. I mean, Ultra was probably another game-changing product for us in our recent history. It showed what we were capable of as a, from an R&D and uh, new product development perspective. And it also showed our approach to design and our thinking around when we design a bike, what, what we should be focused on. And it was definitely a case of it was as much around the aerodynamic of the product. It was also around the engagement with the customer with the bike. The design process was around how we think about things holistically from a bike and customer perspective, not just here's a bike, let's put it in the winter and try and get the best possible result. It was absolutely around not just the aerodynamic performance, but the ergonomic performance as well. So it's a holistic approach to design of the product. Yeah, so I think that was, that was a, very, um, a great way of us kind of showing, right, this is what Ribble's capable of now. And we're going to continue to push that envelope in terms of how far we can push things. It's definitely a, uh, a great way of us showing that R&D is core to our business. And uh, we're going to continue to push that. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.